Well, hello everyone. Welcome to worship. Uh, my name is Scott Rains. I'm one of the pastors here. So glad you've decided to join us for worship today. Uh, big welcome to those of you sitting out in overflow behind can't, can't see anything. We're glad you're here too. God loves you more if you're sitting in a place where you can't see. Oh man, we are in the middle of a, a message series called uh, What Are You Wearing? Over the course of four weeks, we're looking at only six Bible verses and digging into what God has to teach us from these verses. Last week, we looked at love. Today, we're going to be focusing in on forgiveness. That scene from Invictus uh, shows Morgan Freeman playing the great South African leader, Nelson Mandela. And Mandela says, forgiveness removes fear. Forgiveness removes fear, and he knows something about fear. He's imprisoned for 27 years because he's fighting for uh, justice and equality, particularly for black South Africans. After he gets released from prison, he helps uh, overthrow apartheid, that oppressive system of government in South Africa. He gets elected to be uh, the president, and then he experiences death threat after death threat after death threat. So he knows something about fear, and he says, forgiveness removes fear. So we get started today, I wonder if you would just spend a little bit of time thinking about what is it that is filling you with fear these days? Because there's a lot going on in this world that's scary, isn't there? From North Korea to ISIS and other sorts of terrorism to Las Vegas and Sutherland Springs, it seems like every week there's something new, something unexpected, something that we could never have imagined or thought we would ever having to be uh, dealing with. And of course, those are only the fears that make it onto the nightly news. In a room like this, everybody brings their own kind of private fears with them. They carry them into worship, fears for your marriage, fears for your family, fears for your future. As a pastor, I get to talk to a lot of people, and, and one of the themes that I kind of hear in conversations these days, people seem to be grieving sort of this loss of a sense of safety and security that they desire. And for a lot of people, these feel like increasingly turbulent and chaotic times, and there is fear that things just are not going to get better. So, did you know that NASA has a $1 billion probe that's orbiting the planet Jupiter? The probe is called Juno, and every 53 days or so, it comes close enough to Jupiter, it's able to take just some incredible images of this planet. Here's the probe, uh, and then there's the planet behind it. Jupiter is a thousand times bigger than Earth. A thousand times, I can't even comprehend that. It's mostly gas. The planet is mostly gas. And so the images that come back and get processed by people with the equipment to do that sort of thing, it looks like something out of this world, something that we would never see in our world and on our planet. There you see Juno again, and behind it is Jupiter's red spot. Jupiter's red spot is actually a storm, and it's a massive storm. You could fit two, two and a half planet Earths in this storm that we see as Jupiter's red spot. Astronomers have been looking at that storm and, and studying it at least since 1830, but some people say even as far back as the 1600s, astronomers were looking at this storm. Massive, massive storm. We've had a lot of big storms on our planet this year, haven't we? Destructive storms catastrophic storms. Hurricane Irma that blew through the Caribbean a couple of months ago, they recorded winds 185 miles an hour. Can you imagine how destructive that would be? The storms on Jupiter reach 400 miles per hour. I can't even fathom a, a storm twice as big as our planet with winds gusts, wind speeds of 400 miles an hour. It's just 
crazy, right? I don't know about you, but I kind of like storms. Midwesterners, I think we're kind of weird that way. We love to watch a storm come rolling in, an Iowa thunderstorm, right? And you like to, you, you watch that uh, wall of clouds come in and then it gets dark and you can feel the temperature drop and the, the wind start to pick up and we kind of like that. But unless you're a storm chaser, I think all of us would agree the bigger the storm gets, the less there is to like about it. The bigger the storm gets, the scarier the storm becomes. There are physical storms, sort of weather storms, but there are also storms in relationships, aren't there? And we experience the same kind of phenomena. It starts to get dark, you can feel the clouds rolling in, and the temperature drops, and the relationship can get really icy in a hurry. And those kinds of storms are troubling. Those kinds of storms can feel really frightening, scary. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but we went to Chicago, uh, the Hope Ankeny staff, earlier this week for a conference, challenged and um, encouraged and inspired. It was just great. Heard from lots of speakers. One of the speakers reminded me the Bible actually begins with an account of God calming a storm. Do you ever think of the creation of the heavens and the earth as God calming a storm? Let's read this verse together. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. And I don't know what the writer of Genesis is, is really looking at or envisioning when they write this, but for me, as I was thinking about it this week, those images that we just looked at from Jupiter, that, that feels a lot like what's going on here. This formless and empty sort of dark, stormy, chaotic kind of mess. That's what Jupiter's red spot is, and I wonder if sometimes the red spot inside of us that we call our hearts, I wonder if it's experiencing the same thing. Is there anything going on in your life these days that causes your heart to feel formless and empty? Anything going on in your life this, these days that fills your heart with fear? Anything going on in your life these days that causes you to feel like life is chaotic and disordered and out of control and maybe causes you to question and wonder Where's God in the midst of this storm that I'm going through? The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. Where's God? The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. I, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I do know today's not the day to give up. Today's not the day to lose hope. Today's the day to remember when we find ourselves in the midst of a dark and chaotic storm and we wonder, where is God? God is hovering over the surface of your life. And when the Spirit of God hovers over a storm, what our faith tells us that means is something good is coming. And I don't know when and I don't know what and I don't know how, but when God's Spirit hovers over the surface of your life and the surface of your storm, God's about to say, let there be light for you. God's about to breathe new life into your lungs. God's about to say, peace be still to whatever storm it is you might be experiencing these days. Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? The disciples ask one time when they're in the middle of a storm and they're scared to death and they think they're going to die and Jesus calms the storm. Who is this man? Who is this man? Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's here for you in the middle of your storm. It's all kinds of storms that people go through. The storm I'd like to talk about in the rest of the time we have today is the storm we experience when somebody sins against us, when somebody 
hurts us. Maybe by what they do to us or what they say to us. Sometimes it's what they don't do and what they don't say. And and the relationship is damaged and trust is lost. What are we to do? How do we respond in, in those kinds of situations and moments? Well, you're at church, so I'm guessing you know the answer. I mean, last week, Eli preached this powerful message about, above all else, clothe yourselves with love. Love is supposed to be the number one characteristic that marks us as followers of Jesus Christ. And we pray a prayer on a pretty regular basis around here that Jesus teaches us to pray. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What do we do when someone hurts us? We know the answer is we're supposed to love them and we're supposed to forgive them. But, but am I the only one who thinks that's kind of difficult? Am I the only one who finds myself sometimes kind of in the same place that Peter finds himself in Matthew chapter 18 when Peter comes to Jesus and he's like, hey Jesus, how long do I have to keep forgiving this jerk who keeps offending me? It's a loose translation of the Greek, but it's really what... Uh, You remember how Jesus responds? 70 times 7. 70 times 7. And we believe in that idea so much here at Hope. We kind of built our church around that idea. There's a cross on the top of the prayer chapel of this building. The top of the cross is 70 feet from the ground floor of this building. We did that on purpose. 70 feet and 7 feet wide. So that every time we look at that cross, when you're driving by on your way to school or work or coming to a church, every time you look at that cross, it's a reminder Jesus calls us to live this kind of life, a life of love and forgiveness, 70 times 7, which does not mean 490 times. 7 in the Bible is a number that's always associated with completion or perfection. So Jesus is saying, I want you to engage in the process of forgiveness until the process has been completed, until the process has been perfected. What do we do when someone hurts us? We forgive them. But again, if we're being honest, doesn't that sound a little too simplistic? Or, or maybe, does, does it ever feel like that's just not enough? Like, what they did to you, what they said to you was painful. It really hurt, and, and you're supposed to just forgive them just like that? And sometimes we have this fear, what if they continue to hurt me? What if I point out the offense, I point out the sin, and they get mad at me and they abandon me, they leave me alone? I think all of us know there's nothing easy about forgiveness. It's not like, hey, I did that to you, I'm sorry, and then the other person responds, oh, I forgive you, and then we all live happily ever after. We know forgiveness doesn't work that way. It's not that easy. But a lot of us have been taught that's all there is to it. Somebody hurts you, somebody offends you, somebody does something that damages trust, You just got to forgive them. It's what the Bible says. So think about it. Mandela says forgiveness removes fear. Scripture says perfect love casts out fear. Jesus says forgive 70 times 7. And you start to put all of that together. And what you start to discover is Jesus wants us to engage in a process of forgiveness. Because As we do that, God's love gets perfected in us. If we want to be people who are clothed with love, this process of forgiveness is the way that love gets perfected in us. One more time, ask the question, what do we do when someone hurts us? What if we were to respond the way God responds? God grieves. What if that became our response to sin, our response when somebody hurts us? Psalm 78, 
is this account of kind of the history of the relationship God has with the people of Israel. And like any relationship, there are some really good times in that relationship, and there are some not-so-good times in that relationship. And the psalm writer talks about the not-so-good times this way. How often they, the people of Israel, rebelled against him, God, in the wilderness and grieved his heart in that dry wasteland. When people did something to hurt the relationship that God has with them, when they sin, we're talking about forgiveness, is when somebody sins against us, what's God's response? It's grief. Other places in Scripture, it says our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Now, over the last 50, 60 years or so, we've come a long way in our understanding of how grief works. Uh, People like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross have reminded us, grief is not something we're just supposed to like get over it. My goodness, it's been three months, shouldn't you be over it by now? No, grief is not something we get over. Grief is something we work through. Grief happens in stages. So she talks about different stages, denial, bargaining, anger, acceptance. Some people have five stages, some people have seven stages. There's more than one stage. It's not a one and done thing. There's a process to this. You work your way through stages. When someone you love dies, it throws you into grief, and then you start working your way through this process because you've experienced a loss. And we experience losses in all sorts of ways. Absolutely, when someone we love dies, but all kinds of loss that we go through that throws us into grief. When someone sins against us, when someone hurts us, it's a loss, and it throws us into grief. And there's not like a, here's how long, here's the timeline it should take for you to go through this whole process. And in each stage, it doesn't have a timeline to it either. And it's not like you progress cleanly from stage one to two to three to four. We bounce back and forth all the time. But the point is, it's, it's bigger than we think it is. It's broader than we think it is. It's, it's more than we think it is. And this is, grief is God's response to sin. And so forgiveness is actually going to look a lot like the grief process. There's a process to forgiveness. And we're going to talk about it, but before we do, I want you to just kind of, do you have a person in mind? Is there someone in mind that you're having a hard time forgiving? And, and part of the problem is the way we talk about forgiveness, we start to think there's something wrong with me if I'm having a difficult time forgiving this person, if I'm having a difficult time trusting someone who has a proven track record of not being trustworthy. And we think there's something wrong with me because we think it's this easy, we've been told it's just this easy, simple thing, just forgive them. So who's that person? What's that situation? What's that relationship where forgiveness is difficult or not happening, or you've, you think, maybe I've, I've said I forgive them, but it doesn't feel like I've forgiven them. Keep them in the back of your mind as we work our way through this. Stage one in the process of forgiveness is denial. Denial, it's not just a river in Egypt, right? I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, our, culture, our culture seems to view denial as a virtue. What if you do if someone hurts you? You just deny the hurt. You deny the pain. You, you pretend like it doesn't phase me. Sticks and stones may make, break my bones, you know. Uh, and, and we just pretend like nothing happened. We, we deny it. And we think that, that somehow that's a strength. But have you been paying attention to the news the last couple of weeks? Last month or so? 
It, it, it seems like culture is getting to this tipping point where we're like, living in denial is not a good or healthy way to live. And people, women in particular, are saying no more living in denial. And what has been done, deeds of darkness are being brought into the light. Let there be light, God says, because that's the only way healing happens. And people, women in particular, are telling their stories about the ways in which they've been mistreated, they've been abused by powerful men, typically, and they've been denying, 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 but it's not working. Not going to deny it any longer. We're going to, the truth will set you free. And, and sometimes the response is, well, why'd you wait a decade or two before you tell your story? Because it's scary as heck. Because it's so scary. What if nobody believes me? I'm a 14-year-old. What if nobody believes me? Or what if they say it was really my fault? Or, or what if, what if, what if? And there's, what if it costed me a career? There's all kinds. Denial and fear are closely connected. We have this, we started off with this, forgiveness removes fear, right? Denial and fear are closely connected. So my wife, Wendy, was at yoga class this week. And she was telling me about her experience. She said it was fantastic. I said, it kind of sounds like you went to church. No, church is much better than yoga. Anyway, <laughs> the yoga instructor says uh, at the beginning of the class, I'm setting an intention for the class, which is apparently yoga talk, right? What, what, what's the point of this class? And it's like, we're going to overcome fear in this yoga class. And then the yoga instructor starts quoting Zig Ziglar, this motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar, right? And Ziglar says there's like two ways for dealing with the fears in our life. One way is to deny it. But here's what Ziglar says. Denial is forget everything and run. Something bad happens, something scary happens, something hurtful happens, and I'm just going to deny it. I'm going to pretend like it didn't happen. I'm going to cross my fingers and hope that maybe things will get better without me have to actually confront it or say anything or, or do anything. Denial. It's a form of denial. Just forget everything and run. And Christians, some of you here, you've been Christians for a long time. We use the Bible to keep us in denial. I mean, our Bible reading for this series is just these six verses. And today it's like, make allowance for each other's faults. And sometimes we read that and we're like, oh, make allowance. Nobody's perfect. So yeah, they hurt me, but I mean, come on. I'll, I'll allow that because nobody's perfect, and I just got to forgive them. And we use Scripture to keep us in denial. So that's one way to respond to the fears that we have in life. Not the best way, not a healthy way. The other way of responding to the fears in our life is to face everything and rise. Again, this is Zig Ziglar. Face everything and rise. Like, denial's not working for me. And in fact, the longer I stay in denial, it, it becomes kind of fuel for my fear. It makes things worse. And so instead of being in this kind of place, Jesus invites us into the process of forgiveness, 70 times 7. Engage in the process of forgiveness until God's love gets perfected in you. No, no, stop living in denial. Start moving through this process of forgiveness. Stage one's denial. The next stage is bargaining. And this one for me is kind of the one that's a little difficult for me to kind of understand. Here's what's been most helpful for me in trying to make sense of this. Um, think of bargaining as a coin, two-sided coin, right? One side of the bargaining coin is hope. 
The other side of the bargaining coin is shame. So when somebody hurts me, when somebody sins against me, uh, and I'm in the bargaining stage, I'm, I'm not going to deny it, but I'm in the bargaining stage, I'm hoping that maybe I can fix things. I'm hoping that I can do something or say something that will cause the other person to see you know, the error of their ways, that they were wrong, and they will apologize, they'll say I'm sorry, and now you know, maybe we can move to forgiveness. I'm hoping I will say something that will convict them. <laughs> the problem is, we, I don't have the power to do that. I don't have the power to change somebody else. It's not my job to convict someone else of their sin. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And so when I'm holding on to this hope that I can fix it, eventually I get to a place where I'm like, it's not changing, it's not fixing anything, and the coin flips. And now I'm in this place of shame because I've been unable to fix it. I've been unable to solve the problem. And now I feel like there's something wrong with me. Like, like maybe it's not as bad as it seems, or, or maybe it's really more my fault than their fault. And we slide back down into denial. There, there's a... There's a flow to this process. It's not a, a linear fashion. There's a flow to it. And here's maybe one way. To, we'll put this graph up on the screen. Here's one way to think of it. As we're moving through the process of forgiveness, it's almost like we're climbing the hill to anger. And we get out of the denial stage. We get into the bargaining stage. But I hope, I hope, I hope it gets better and it's not getting better. And I just slide back down into denial because that feels safer and easier. I'm hoping, I'm hoping it gets better, but then I start to get filled with shame because of all kinds of reasons, so I slide back down into denial. It turns out, you're going to want to write this down, it turns out the key to forgiveness is anger. The key to forgiveness, it, I bet you never heard that from a preacher before. <laughs> the key to forgiveness is anger. What, what we typically hear from preachers is, uh, we're going to start a new message series today to help you, you know, not be angry. And we're going to take four weeks because you got anger issues, and anger is sinful and it's bad, right? That's typically how we talk about anger. That's, you know, bad reading of Scripture. It's bad theology. You, you don't have to read the Bible very long to see that God gets angry at sin. God gets angry at sin, um, God gets, and God is perfect, and God is holy, and everything God does, we believe, is good and right, and God gets angry at sin when people are mistreated, at injustice, at oppression, when sin happens, God gets angry, and God sends his son Jesus to show us the best way to live, and what does Jesus do when Jesus gets angry at sin? particularly the sin of self-righteous pride. We talk about this pretty frequently with the Pharisees and even the rest of the people of Israel are like, you know, God loves us and he doesn't love you. The self-righteous pride. We're good enough. We don't need forgiveness. God chose us. And Jesus gets angry at that. He gets angry at injustice and oppression and when people are mistreated. We misinterpret what scripture has to say about anger all the time. The other thing we misinterpret is God's anger at sin leads to what? And almost always we say God's anger at sin leads to violent wrath against sinners. And certainly we can find examples from Scripture where it seems to be indicating that. But we can also find examples from Scripture that seem to be indicating when God gets angry at sin, it's almost like he's going through this grief process. It's grieving his heart and... Um, he gets to this place of anger, but when God gets to this place of anger, it leads to the cross. 
God's anger at sin, and you may not believe me today, and that's fine, but I'm going to say it, and I'll probably keep saying it on a pretty regular basis, because I believe at some point you'll come to this conclusion too, that this is the truth about God's anger at sin. It's what leads to the cross. It's, it's what leads to the place where forgiveness becomes possible for you and for me and for anyone who believes. God's anger at sin is what makes forgiveness possible. So, again, you're going to want to take notes on this. So what does that mean for this relationship or this situation, this person that you're having a hard time forgiving? God says you get to be angry at them. Right? God says you get to be angry at them. Now, some of you, as we've been talking about this, you've been feeling the anger rising up in you because of what they have done and, and the hurt that they have caused you. And now, it's like, preacher gave me permission to be mad at them and game on, here we go, right? So let's just, sort of, sort of. What does the Bible say about anger? It does not teach us, don't be angry. But the Bible does very clearly say, in your anger, do not sin. So there's a good anger, a righteous anger, and there's an anger that's sinful or leads to sin. So what's the purpose of anger in this process of forgiveness? The purpose is to get us over the hump. It's not to retaliate. It's not to get even. It's not to hurt them back because of the way they hurt you. It's to keep us moving forward in the process, of, to get us over the hump. So we stop sliding back down into denial. We get angry and eventually, that anger, that fuse burns out, and we get to a place of love, acceptance, forgiveness. Just like God's anger at sin leads to the cross, leads to the place of forgiveness, our anger at people who hurt us, who sin against us, is supposed to lead us to that place of acceptance and forgiveness. How long, how many times do I have to forgive someone who sins against me, Jesus? Seventy times seven. You forgive and you keep forgiving until the process of forgiveness reaches its completion, until it's been perfected in you. God's love has been perfected in you. Now, there's nothing easy about this. This is, this is hard work. But what does Jesus say? Pick up your cross and follow me daily. This is part of the process. Now, Jesus, my favorite verse, John 10.10. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. I've told you all these things, Jesus says to his disciples, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. If we do not engage in the process of forgiveness, we end up getting stuck in our past. If we don't do the hard work of this process of forgiveness, we end up stuck in denial, in fear, in shame, if we don't do this hard work of engaging in the process of forgiveness, we become blind to the ways in which our inability to forgive, our lack of forgiveness, is robbing us of the life that God has for us, the future that God has for us, that is good and beautiful and perfect and pleasing and filled with hope. Make no mistake about it. God has more for you. God has a future for you that is good. Here's how God talks about it through the prophet Isaiah. Let's read this out loud together. Read it with me. For I am about to do something new. See, I've already begun. Do you not see it? And Mandela helps get rid of apartheid. He becomes the president of South Africa. And for a lot of people, they're like, 
This was a miracle. This required a movement of God in order for this to happen. And so there's a lot of excitement about the future of that country and this new government and what it, what it might mean. But Mandela sees things in a way that not everybody was able to see it. For Mandela, it's like the way forward, the way into this future, that this vision, this dream that we have for this country. Forgiveness is the way forward. Forgiveness is the way into this future. Take a look. Let's stand together. I'd like to pray for us before we sing our closing song. Would you pray with me, please? So, Lord, uh, we know we're supposed to love, we're supposed to forgive, and we know that there are many times when that feels impossible. So remind us that what is impossible for us is possible with you, through you. We ask that you would help us to Uh, Remember that those who've been forgiven much love much. And so we ask that you would uh, convict us of those places where we fall short, where we hurt others, that you would move us to a place where we would uh, confess and ask for forgiveness for our sin. And that as we receive your forgiveness, it would help us, it would empower us to do this process of forgiving the people who sin against us, who hurt us. And we need your help, so we ask for it in the name of Jesus who taught his disciples to say together when they pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.